0: We've been going through the book of Philippians as I alter with Cornell, going through the book of Corinthians. It's been a pleasure to be able to alternate with Cornell occasionally, and I really appreciate his study. So let's turn to chapter 2 of Philippians, if you would, please. Uh, We're going to begin in verse 5. But I want to look at the context here to bring us into verse 5, but let's begin with going to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this privilege and honor to gather before you as we collectively gather as your children to study your word, to worship you, and to celebrate you in song and praise and hymns. And Father, we just ask this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would grant us illumination and understanding. From apart from your illumination, we cannot comprehend the depths or understand your word. So we just praise you and thank you for your Holy Spirit. Ask that you would guide us and most of all, that you'd be glorified as we open your word. And examine it today we just give you thanks in Jesus precious name amen well Paul here has been addressing the Saints at Philippi his primary concern at this juncture is the maintaining of unity amongst the Saints so we have uh, Paul trying to communicate a truth but now He reaches for the greatest example that he can bring to exemplify for us harmony and unity, and that is he uses the Lord Jesus Christ as his example. But let's back up a little bit to understand what Paul is reaching for here. We'll look at verse two and read from there. Make my joy complete, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made into the likeness of men. Well, the preeminent example we have before us is probably the only perfect example that we can look at in Scripture, and that is the demonstration of humility that Christ exemplified. The essence of this whole passage brings to us what many theologians consider one of the greatest theological truths of the New Testament. That is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Christ coming to earth as fully God and fully man, which is the Incarnation. The apostle is revealing to us the work and the person of Jesus Christ. This passage could be studied out and presented in several series. We could do numerous Sundays on this text but I'm not going to go into that depth. We are just going to do a mere overstudy in an expositional manner of this text. His incarnation, that is Jesus Christ, his, eterni- his eternality, his divinity, as well as humanity, is examined in this text. Just in this brief, short passage Paul does this now he does not do this as a theological treatise on the incarnation of Jesus Christ he just merely bringing a point and using the lord Jesus Christ as the perfect example of humility which all christians should demonstrate in their lives the essence of this passage is Paul's desire for the Philippians to live in harmony, and in so doing, he points out Christ. The only way we can demonstrate or emulate in some way the humility of Christ is by the power of God's Holy Spirit. Now, we can try to attempt something in our own strength, but it would be fruitless. The only way that we can example or follow the example of Jesus Christ is the re- total and complete reliance upon God's Holy Spirit to have or uh, bring forth the attitude of humility. <clears throat> God's Spirit needs to enable us, which Paul actually explains later in this Um, verses 12 and 13. Excuse me. So then, my beloved, verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul says this, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to work. For God's good pleasure. So, Paul is telling us that it is the believer's responsibility, but it is also by God's enablement. <clears throat> in chapter <clears throat> 2, verses 5 through 8, Paul gives us this imperative Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed, in the form of God did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This central miracle of the Incarnation, is the one thing that God has done to bring forth the path and the way of salvation. In this simple, brief, but extraordinary way, he brings this example of the second person of the triune Godhead, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people will acknowledge Christ's existence. They'll acknowledge that he was a great teacher. Some will say he was a great prophet. But if that's all that is understood about Jesus Christ, we fall short of understanding fully the gospel. And this is what Paul brings forth this morning as we look at this short text we have revelation from scripture in numerous places of the deity of Christ. That is being fully God and fully man. And there are several texts that bring this example forth. There needs to be an under a comprehensive understanding of the coexistence between Christ, the son of God, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit. This doctrine is essential for us to understand as much as we're able. Even though this passage is uh, not deep in its theology, it is, in essence, a profound text on who Christ is. The primary purpose of the apostle in citing the Lord in this text, is the preeminent example to motivate Christians to live like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the supreme example of humility. Paul's trying to motivate these believers to exercise this humility and practice this humility, and he's pointing to the only perfect example that we have. We also saw uh, last time, as we looked at this text, Paul is making a transition from exhorting to from exhorting to bringing now an illustration. This text looks backward, and it also looks forward. Looks backwards at the principle that we looked at last time, that is to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look on your own personal interests, but the interests of others. But this text also looks forward. It looks forward in the sense <clears throat> that <clears throat> he's now using the illustration for this principle, he's using Jesus Christ, who is the perfect fulfillment of humility. The apostle continues to focus on maintaining spiritual unity. We're to have this attitude of spiritual unity in the church. The church is constantly under attack, trying to divide, trying to cause disunity, contention from all means. Paul is trying to bring this attitude of humility to these believers to maintain unity in the body of Christ. So even though it's directed to the saints at Philippi, it's directed to all saints throughout Christian history. Now, when Paul says in verse five, do nothing from uh, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another. When he says one another, he is speaking to the universal body of Christ. He's not speaking to one specific individual. And when he addresses, have this attitude in yourselves, he is addressing the entire body of Philippi. He's not talking to one specific individual, though he knew of specific individuals that were causing contention in that body. This was a universal address. He wanted all believers to understand this principle. So yourselves is not directed at any individual. The attitudes, which was also in Christ, exemplifies Paul's encouragement to the saints in the church of Rome. In Romans 15 verses one through three, Paul says this to the church in Rome, We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. There again, he's pointing to Christ as the example to follow. He's stressing the inseparable relationship between humility and spiritual unity. Paul consistently followed this principle. He reminded the Corinthians, which was expounded by Cornell some time ago. I also please all all spiritual unity. Paul consistently followed this. I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they might be saved. And then he admonished them to be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. That was in 1 Corinthians 10, 33 and 11:1. Humility is certainly not the way of the world, is it? In the way of the world, people want themselves to be exalted they want to hold the highest places of honor most Jews of that day expected the messiah to come as a conquering king but god's way for his son to enter this world was by a humble through a humble family and a humble place he submitted to every type of humiliation and indignity his enemies treated him harshly and he refused to defend himself. <clears throat> so let's begin to look at these verses uh, 5 through 8 in chapter 2. Paul goes on to chronicle the theological descent of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven to earth, describing his exalted position that he left in a series of of downward steps, Christ descended from heaven to earth and exposed himself and gave himself to humility. He was humiliated in every way. Contrast that to the scribes and Pharisee who love seeking glory for themselves. Christ in the book er, said this in the book of Matthew chapter 23. You're not to be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus gives us the perfect example of humility in his descent from heaven to earth. He left this exalted position in heaven, which is one of glory and honor and increasing him in humility, he became man. Jesus possessed God's glory before the incarnation. What's God's glory? James Boyce puts it like this. God's glory consists of his intrinsic worth embedded in his character, and all that can be known of God is merely an expression of it. It is the glory, a glory that embodies the idea of God's intrinsic worth and character that Jesus claimed to share and to have made known to his disciples. When his his disciples beheld his glory at the wedding feast in Cana, it meant that his disciples beheld his character, this character of God. It was seen in Jesus Christ. And if you've seen Christ, the Lord said you've also seen the Father. So Jesus' exalted position in this passage, he existed in the form of God, both before and after his incarnation. He was, in his very nature, fully God and fully man. John MacArthur says this. He gives the meaning of existed, when when he existed in the form of God. Existed as a continuance or a previous act of existence. It stresses the essence of a person's nature, that which is absolutely unalterable, inalienable, and unchangeable. Then William Barclay defines it this way. He says that the verb existed refers to that part of a person which in any circumstance remains the same. That is, Jesus Christ is immutable. That's part of his very attribute. He's unchangeable, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Christ here is exhibiting uh, himself in the form of man, and yet he remained in the form of God. Jesus Christ eternally, eternally and immutably existed and will forever exist in the form of God. So what does this word form mean in the original? The word form comes from the word morph, and it refers to the outward manifestation of an inner reality. That is, before the incarnation, from eternity past, Jesus existed in the divine form of God, equal with God, the Father, in every way. Equal with God, the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> Jesus Christ has been and always will be fully divine. I remember a time when I was witnessing to a friend that I used to work with. Uh, we worked together uh, formerly at a geothermal plant when we were when I worked in a utility company, and this man was. Very smart. He was an engineer and a brilliant man. And as I was witnessing to him, I brought forth the understanding or tried to bring forth the understanding of Jesus Christ and what he has done to provide a way of salvation from our sin. And as I described Christ, I said, Christ has always existed, he had no beginning and he has no end. And this man's face, he just looked stunned like a deer in the headlights. He just looked at me and said, what do you mean? He had no beginning, has no end. I said, he's always existed. I said, we're finite. We had a beginning. We'll have an end. And yet in Christ, we will be eternally with him. I said, now we live for a while on earth and there'll come a time when there'll be God's judgment for all those who have rejected the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now they will live eternally as well, but they'll be destined for eternal torment. Only those who by grace receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be saved and they will live eternally with God. So he he still was baffled about this and I I sorely I felt great I fell short of trying to explain to him the essence of an eternal God and yet I tried to bring forth the understanding of who Christ is and what he has done on behalf of all those who turn to him for salvation so the word morph here is in a very important word. As we look at this, we understand that that form existed, and it's the essential form. Morph of any human being is their humanity. This never changes. That's one description of the word form. Now there's another description and another way that it's used in the Greek, and that's from the word schema. Now this word is the same word as form, but it has a different, entirely different meaning. That is that form which is continually changing. Think of humanity. Humanity is in the essence of morph, it never changes. But when we look at the word schema, it does change. We can be human, but we change from an infant to a baby, to a child, to a young adult, to an adult of old age. That form continually is changing from the day we're born until we go home. So that's the word schema. That's not the word that was used here because the word that was used here was the form of God. That is morph. Christ never changed, ever. He remains God fully for all eternity. So Paul stated this truth of Christ's deity in Colossians 1.15, which Cornell taught just recently. In the first chapter, it says he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, we know what firstborn means. It's not chronological order in that context. It's talking about the place of preeminence. As we know, going back to the Hebrew culture and the Greek culture, the firstborn was the one who received the inheritance. And that is the way in which this word is used in Colossians. It was talking about the place of position that Christ was the firstborn. He was the one who would receive the inheritance of all those who God has the Father has given him. In John 1 verses 1 and 2 it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was was god now jim just completed that a while back expounding the book of john he was in the beginning with god and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory is of the only begotten from the father full of grace jesus said of himself truly truly i say to you before abraham was i am and remember, at that point, the Jews picked up stones to throw at him because he was claiming that he was God. <clears throat> in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, says, "In these last days has been spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory in the exact reputation representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. In light of Jesus' full deity, his incarnation was the greatest form of humiliation. By definition, to forsake perfection requires that someone take on some form of imperfection. Christ was sinless, perfect and lived a perfect, sinless life, suffered and died and was resurrected on the third day and sits at the right hand of the Father. He lived in a human body as fully man, fully God. In light of his deity, this incarnation pointed out his humility. The infinite infinite God became finite the sinless took on sin. The very heart of the gospel of redemption is that the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's in Second Corinthians, which I'm assuming Cornell will get to within a year or so. Chapter 5, verse 21. To be sin, that is by imputation, God put the penalty of sin on Jesus Christ. Christ did not sin himself. The sin of all those who turned to him for salvation was put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It was imputed. It was put to his account. It's an accounting term that was used in the Greek. This imputation, that is, our sin All those who turn to Christ for salvation, their sin is put upon, was put upon the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. Not universal. That's not talking about everyone's sin, even those who don't turn to Christ. No, it's not talking about that. All those who are in Christ, their sin, the penalty was paid for. Now, if we talk about the efficacy or the ability of that sacrifice to pay for all sin, yes. But the sins that were paid for on the cross for all those who turn to Christ for salvation. Don't make that distinction. If we have faith in Christ, then because of our relationship with Christ, we have a standing before God. Through him, were God's children. John one twelve says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. That is a saving faith in Christ. That's just not someone saying, well, oh, I believe what Christ did, and I believe that what he did was the way of my salvation. No, it is a true understanding of who Christ is and placing our faith in him for salvation. We are Christ's children by adoption. Romans 8, 15 tells us that. Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1, 5. It's not an inherent right for us to be a child of God. Some people say, well, we're all children of God. No, that's not so. The world would like it to be that way. They would love universal salvation and then just live any way they want. But that's not the gospel. The way is narrow. Some self-centered individuals take pride in their position and calling themselves children of God as children of the king. They believe that they're to live like royalty. Yet Christ, it tells us in the gospel, had no place to lay his head. Christ commands in Matthew 8, verse 20, this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Christ was the living example for us to follow. Many Christians claim that their lives are built on Christ, but in actuality, they knew very little or know very little about who Christ is. We should study and understand who is Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. We should understand more of him and more about him, which is revealed in God's word. When we see him in the proper perspective, we see him coexisting with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead. From his exalted position, Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He fully existed as God during his incarnation, but he didn't hold on to his divine rights and privileges. Equality with God is the same as the preceding phrase, form of God. It shows Christ's true nature, Nature in essence. Equality in this verse is actual plural equalities. Paul may have been referring to every aspect of Jesus' deity, the term refers to exact equivalence, like a triangle with equal sides. Using the word equal in Philippians 2.6 teaches us that Jesus is God's equal. Jesus did not forfeit or diminish his absolute equality with God. Some wrongly say that Christ was divine in the sense that all people are divine. Many will call him the Son of God in the sense as we're children of God, as I stated previously. This is not the teaching of Scripture. When we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're speaking of the eternal, unique Godhead. He exists eternally as the second person of the triune Godhead, and as such, is equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Everything that God the Almighty is to you and me, so also is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the teaching of the Bible. During his earthly ministry, Jesus never denied or minimized his deity. He acknowledged his divine sonship with the Father in John 5, 17 and 18, in verses 10 and 30 of John five, John 17:2 says this, "Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all whom you gave have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, which the glory which I had before with you before the world was." So Christ there is referring back to his position with the Father in eternal, all of eternity. He is one with the Father, one with the Holy Spirit. Christ never used his power or authority for personal gain or for privileges of his deity. They were not something he wanted to hang on to. He willingly suffered the worst possible humiliation rather than demand honor and privilege and glory, which he deserved. He humbled himself in the form of man. He also didn't use his power or his sovereignty to oppose his father's will. Now we're going to examine this more carefully as we continue this text. But I want to leave you with this. God is so loving to his children that he is giving us the perfect example of humiliation that we can follow by the empowerment of God's Spirit. Let's not abuse that. Let's take to heart what Paul is admonishing these believers and all believers to follow. That is the example of humility that our Lord Jesus Christ exemplified and gave us to follow. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this day. Pina, able to worship you. And I pray, Father, that we would take this text to heart, that we would truly understand our call to humility, and that by your grace, we would practice humility in our lives, and that we would exalt you in so doing. I thank you for the revealed word. I thank you for your spirit giving us understanding and the power to obey. We ask now that you would continue to guide us, to enable us to bring glory to your name as we listen to your word being proclaimed and as we offer praise and worship and song and hymn. We just pray that you'd be glorified in this As we do so, and we give you praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.